Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. With everything going on in the world today, we could use a modern guru. Yogananda, one of the most famous gurus of the 20th century, came to America in the 1920s to give us a way through mindfulness and meditation to build inner resources to deal with the hardships and challenges that have always been a part of the human experience. But what about the story behind the story? What amazing gems did Yogananda the man experience as he faced adversity, oppression, and his own human struggles? This week, public speaker, ordained interfaith minister, and co-host of the Spirit Matters podcast, Philip Goldberg joins us to discuss Yogananda's important story and how it can help us to ignite our best lives. This is a Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. Welcome to the Spark. Thank you for being with us. Good to be with you, Stephanie. So before we talk about your book, The Life of Yogananda, the story of the the yogi who became the first modern guru, I'm really curious as a fellow podcast host, tell me a little bit about your show, Spirit Matters. I've been doing some research on you and I'm I'm really (laughs) curious about your podcast. Well, uh, it's been going now for two, three years. An old friend of mine uh, named Dennis Ramundi, who had a radio show in Iowa, wanted to ha- have a show devoted uh, to spirituality. And he knew because of my work, the book prior to the Yogananda biography was a book called American Veda, which chronicled the the history of uh, all the Indian spiritual teachings coming here. Because of that and my work in interfaith and other writings, uh, I know a lot of people. So he thought uh, I could, uh, you know, we could get good guests on uh, Spirit Matters to talk about different aspects of spirituality. So we started up the uh, program and we've got about 150 interviews archived now with some very, very interesting people. And thank you for asking. I just think it's such a wonderful medium that allows us to get some of this wonderful information. And like you said, these great guests out to a wider audience. Indeed. And um, I'm very pleased that, you know, we've had such good response from so many uh, talented and uh, brilliant people. Well, you've written several books, as you said, this American Veda, Road Signs on the Spiritual and Intuitive Edge, all, all these different books you've also authored and co-authored. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious what makes this one. I, I know that one of the things you said is that the autobiography of a yogi that Yogananda wrote in 1946 was just an iconic memoir and it had global impact. So yeah. what, what was the inspiration and the importance for you in writing about the life of Yogananda now? Well, you have to go back to my writing American Veda. I covered more than 200 years of history of how uh, teachings, these uh, you know deep and profound spiritual teachings from India uh, became part of the American uh, culture and American landscape. So I profiled all the principal figures who uh, were part of that. 
And in that context, Yogananda, you know, stood out uh, for his huge contribution. And the fact that he was here between 1920 and 1952, when he passed. So he was here for a very long time at a time, a monumental period of our history, the 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, when there were very few other uh, Indian gurus here, unlike what would transpire in the 60s and 70s. And uh, because of his autobiography of a yogi, the impact he had endured, you know, six decades after he passed. So I became fascinated uh, by his impact, but also by his sort of human story, the narrative of his life. And I thought, I wish I had space in American Veda to say more. So after it was published, I just kept thinking, you know, I'd like to revisit his life in a bigger context. So I reread Autobiography of a Yogi, and the key factor was re in rereading that, I just realized how much he left out, that there were vast periods of his, or periods of years in his life that he leaves out of the book, and details that he just chose not to include, uh, and historical context of his life that you could only have looking back after time passed. So for all those reasons, and because I realized in his life, there are lessons to be learned that uh, even though he was an exceptional human being in so many ways, uh, there were lessons for all of us to learn. So that combination of factors led to my wanting to write a biography, and it was a, a great experience. So you talked about that there are huge gaps left out in his autobiography. What do you find so important about Yogananda's human story? Because it makes me think of like Marcus Borg wrote the book, Getting to Know Jesus for the First Time. And it was about the historical Jesus and the importance just of the human being yes. and, and just that story that we can really connect to. And it, it actually gets us even more in touch with our humanness. And we can relate in a different way to these very spiritual beings. Quite right. And, and that's, you nailed one of the important factors. You know, biographies and you know narratives of real human beings are have always appealed to us and and we tend to write biographies of uh, and read biographies of exceptional human beings people we can look up to people we can admire but one of the reasons we do is because while they're exceptional and they you know accomplish things that rare human beings accomplish whether it's you know, Lincoln or Churchill or Einstein or Jesus or St. Augustine or whoever, they're exceptional people, but they're still human. And their human qualities, the struggles, the opposition they have to overcome, their backgrounds, the historical context in which they live, the lessons they learn, the, the way they respond to human affairs, their likes and dislikes, their flaws, their weaknesses, all those things are ways for us to learn about ourselves and our own lives. And so Yogananda is in in that category. I'm fascinated by spiritual teachers 
and especially in my case, the ones who came here from Asia and had an impact on American religion and spirituality because they were coming from a, a vastly different culture and how they adapted and how they were received, all that is part of the story. And in Yogananda's case, he was not only very important, but he was also somebody who uh, large numbers of people are interested in because of his autobiography. And it occurred to me that they would want to know things more about him than is revealed in his own book or in other sources. So I set out to do that research. And I think by being an outsider, because I was never a disciple of his or a formal student, I was able to bring a, a certain level of objectivity and as a obsessed researcher, <laughs> uncover, you know, facts and uh, scenarios that uh, other people had not. So I just felt it would be a good contribution. And I'm very pleased that people come away reading the, from reading the book, people who are serious devotees of Yogananda and students of his, saying that they learned a great deal and it's helped them understand certain things and their own spiritual lives. Uh, that that pleases me a lot, uh, and it's, gra it's quite gratifying. Well, yeah, it's it's deepening their journey as well. It yes. sounds like really deepening their spiritual journey. Just I'm, learning, for example, that Yogananda struggled yes. and had obstacles to overcome, and that it was not easy to accomplish what he did. Uh, I've had people say to me, "Well, I used to think, oh, I'm a spiritual person." And then I'd have a setback in life or disappointments or life would get difficult. And I'd, and I'd say, what's wrong with me? This shouldn't be happening. And then you say, even somebody of the stat spiritual stature of a Yogananda had to struggle and, and overcome obstacles and, and face disappointments and all that. So I guess it, can, it happens to all of us. We're human. Let's talk about that a little bit. Because first of all, I guess for those people that aren't familiar with Yogananda, can you talk a little bit about the reason he came to America and what mm. his mission was? Well, you know, he, as a young man in India, and uh, it was very satisfying and interesting to research his early life and his teenage years in Calcutta especially were fascinating. And this is in the, primarily in the very early period of the 20th century. Uh, well, there's a lot to be said about his early life, but when he, he, he seemed to be called from a very early age, it was obvious he was meant to be a spiritual leader and a renunciate, he, that he was just drawn to the uh, monk's way of life, the traditional renunciate, what's called sannyasi life in India. And despite uh, <laughs> opposition from his family who wanted him to get married and have a job like a good Indian guy, Bengali, uh, he, that he was, his heart was set on it. And it was very obvious at an early age. I mean, when he was an adolescent, he, he was leading spiritual groups and starting ash, an ashram. So then when he found his guru, it, it turned out that his guru and his guru's guru had sort of this... I don't know whether you call it a premonition or so, some signs of some sort or an intuitive sense that someone in their lineage would go to America and bring the teachings, traditional teachings, to the West. And he was marked. 
with that destiny from an early age. And after he became a Swami, about two years later, after starting a school in India and all that, he just felt that the time had come and the calling he was given at an early age, it was time to fulfill. So he came to America in 1920 on the first ship from Calcutta to America since before World War One. All the passenger ships had been suspended and all that. And, and he, so he came here, a stranger in a strange land, at age 27, first to Boston, in 1920. And so, as it turns out, what I said before about him having left out a lot in his um, autobiography, less than 10% of the autobiography of a yogi is about his years in America. And those were more than half his life and the bulk of his adult life. And so, and, you know, he spent for four years in Boston, which he dismisses in a sentence or two in the book. So there was so much to be said about what it was like for him over those, that period of time. Well, and you shared in your book and you, you know, that about him having to deal with, and as we talked about earlier, you know, dealing with betrayal and racism and obstacles and disappointments, yeah. a lot of adversity. Not to mention money problems. Yeah. I mean, can you, know, you speak to some you know, of that? I mean, what, what, what were some of those human elements that he had to, to deal well, with? Well, he, you know, he took his mission very seriously. He, he had come here to bring these traditional teachings to whoever would be interested. He had to learn how to reach Americans, you know, what language to use, what topics to emphasize, how do you let people know you're here, where do you speak, all the, you know, little stuff. And for, you know, all these, you know, these learning experiences, he required people to, who believed in him to step up and, you know, help in, in, in uh, you know, adapting to America and its ways. And over time, you know, his teachings proved to be popular. Students came, they, you know, he had to learn, you know, how do you do charge money, all these things you don't do in India. You know, how do you adapt the teachings? You know, how do you have students and, you know, the length and breadth of America and stay in touch with them in a, you know, pre-internet, <laughs> pre-television period of, of history. So he did things like make some of his teachings available by mail order, which would have been very innovative in the 20s uh, and very untraditional. So he had opposition from traditionalists. There were all that. And as things grew, he realized, you know, well, you have to have a building and you have to have a space and you have to have a budget and you have to have employees. And so he had, as a monk with no training in such things, he had to a, a, acquire some of the responsibilities and hassles that an entrepreneur or, you know, the CEO of a small growing company ha would have to deal with. This was the 1920s. And then bang, came the Great Depression. And so the financial pressures, he had to, he was dealing with financial pressure throughout his time here. And as the, his organization grew and as, you know, with all the complexity that any organization of, you know, flawed human beings <laughs> bring. And so there were people who turned on him, people who betrayed him. There were scandals. And as you mentioned, racism. This was the 20s and 30s. You know, we have racism now. It was 
far worse then. It was the height of the Ku Klux Klan's influence in America. And he had serious, you know, threats and obstacles to face. You know, think of it. You know, you see a, a dark-skinned person with longish hair now. Maybe in Fort Collins you might do a double take, but in most American cities, you know, you just say, oh, there's a person from India or Pakistan or whatever. But in the 20s, can only imagine what that was like, would have been like. So, you know, he had to deal with all of that and religious bigotry, all kinds of obstacles you, you can only imagine. And of course, I spell it out in my book. And on top of everything, he was traveling, you know, on a British passport because India was part of the British Empire at the time. And so the Brits were keeping an eye on him. There were things he had to deal with. And lawsuits, there were lawsuits, there were scurrilous headlines in newspapers. There was all kinds of stuff that he had to overcome. The Great Depression being a big part of it. Well, and I think, again, that the importance of discussing this and sharing this in your book is for all of us to know that it's important to be on the spiritual path and the myth of once you're spiritual, you never have difficulties or life is just smooth sailing is exactly that. It's a myth. Precisely. And if if reading my book or doing interviews like this does nothing else but alert people on a spiritual path, particularly newcomers to a spiritual path, that real life continues and being a spiritual person, cultivating a spiritual life, unless you go off to, I mean, look, even if you were to, you know, renounce the world and go off to a cave in the Himalayas, like Yogananda was tempted to do on many an occasion, because he didn't realize what he was in for when he came to America. But even if you did that, you'd have to deal with like, how do I get food? And how do I get wood for the fire? And what about this annoying monk in the next cave, <laughs> you know, and things like that? There's no escaping the real life issues that we invariably run up against because we all have our karma and we all have bodies and we all have bodies that need to needs have to be met and so on and so forth. And if you're in the world and you're a family person and you have a job and, and all this, you're going to have ups and downs. When people get on a spiritual path, I know this from all my other work and my own life, the, the initial phase is often so euphoric and so transformative. Things get better and life is happier and life is smoother. And you just sort of imagine it will just get better and better and better and better in this sort of upward trajectory. But then someone betrays you or disappoints you or you lose your job or the economy tanks or, you know, things happen. People die. Big part of the spiritual lessons we have to learn is that, you know, there is this eternal dimension of life where everything is bliss and good, and we want to tap into that. But we're also in this world where things change and people die and people do stupid things <laughs> and life goes on. And we have, that's the integration part. So Yogananda's life is an exemplary in that uh, he too had to deal with stuff, but he dealt with it with a certain grace and there's there's lessons to be learned from both the fact that he dealt with all these things and how he did it. 
I think one of the important pieces is whether we're on a spiritual path or not, real life is going to happen. Right. The random chaos and and the messiness of life is going to show up. And right. what a difference it actually makes. I mean, you cannot be on a spiritual path, life's still going to show up. You can be on a spiritual path, life's going to show up, but you experience it maybe differently or have different resources. Quite right. If you're and, on a spiritual path. And that's the difference because, you know, spirituality aside, any psychologist, and I gather you're one of them. Psychotherapist, yeah. Psychotherapist will tell you that how you respond to events will determine its effect on you and your life. It's there in all the research on stress management and health outcomes and all the rest. And then there's this spiritual dimension of life, which is not just a sanctuary from it all, a refuge from it all, but it actually, if it's a good, healthy spiritual path with good methodologies, will help us deal effectively with the ups and downs and the challenges of life. People often take spirituality to be an escape, but to me, it's not an escape. Maybe it's a temporary escape. You take time off for your spiritual practice, your meditation, or you're going on a retreat or whatever. But you do that to replenish yourself so you can deal effectively with the world. I mean, that is, you know, one of the great lessons that people like Yogananda taught from the perspective of the yoga tradition, so to speak. And even though he and many of the other gurus who came here, like the Buddhist monks, were renunciates, you know, non-family people, they knew they were talking to people in the world and they wanted to give them the tools to have a more effective life, not just to escape from the responsibilities and challenges. You could say the same of any religious tradition. Yes, absolutely. And and it's that it gives us inner resources so that we're not derailed by life. Quite right. And what shows up. Quite yeah. right. And, you know, we should specify that we use the term real life. I know. Whereas... Quote, there's quotes. There's little quotes around that, right? <laughs> well, but, but, you know, some people would say, oh, no, that's the sort of so-called real life. That's really the illusory part. Mm. The real life is the spiritual side. Yes, yes. Well, I, I so you, you. Can, you can make that case, but either way, you know, the, the point is the same. Yes, we can differentiate, I guess, our physical experience, our human experience versus right. our spiritual experience. And That's so right. Which we can is say more our human real. experience. Yeah, we won't get into the existential <laughs> discussion about reality, but, but okay. definitely our human experience can be really messy. Yes. So maybe we could call it that the human experience versus the spiritual experience. Yeah. By definition, it's going to be. And so that's the beautiful thing about the book that you wrote in the sharing more in depth of Yogananda's life and his difficulties he faced is the integration of that and how beautifully he did that. And it's not just how he faced his challenges and dealt with them and all that. The other part of writing about an exalted person whom people put up on a pedestal is they often will imagine that he's perfect. There's no such thing. There's no perfect human being. He had his quirks and he had to learn things. He made mistakes. But the other piece of it is in the midst of it all, he enjoyed himself. 
you know, he wasn't some austere monk. I mean, he was in many ways. He was he led a renunciate's life, but he was, you know, he had all these people around him, and he was teaching, and he enjoyed having good meal and eating sweets and going to see a movie in Los Angeles or sightseeing, having fun and laughing and playing practical jokes. The enjoyment of life even in the midst of having difficulties and a great mission to accomplish, the pleasures and the enjoyments of life are, are not to be overlooked. And he, so he was a good example of that, too, I was pleased to find out. That lovely balance that is not just being serious, that's also playful and, and enjoying the richness that's here as well. Yes, and being silly and having fun is not unspiritual. Spiritual does not mean you being solemn and serious all the time. And having a great mission doesn't mean you can't have fun. Which is one of the things I've always loved about the Dalai Lama, who's always smiling. That's right. I've been around a lot of gurus, and I studied them and writing about them. The ones that have the most success, the ones who are, you know, we look up to the most, they love laughing. They have fun. They're often very childlike in their enjoyment of the simple pleasures of life. I'm wondering, too, if you can share with the audience, what do you feel like was also, what was the essential message that Yogananda was trying to share with Americans? What was it that he was trying to help? Because people that aren't familiar with him don't know what his lessons were about. Well, as far as I'm concerned, it was the the essence of it was the same as all the gurus who came here from India, all the Buddhist monks who came here from different parts of Asia, all the Christian mystics, all the Jewish mystics, all the Sufi mystic and spiritual leaders, all the people who are explorers of the inner life had the, the same message, that there is more to who we are and what we are than we realize, and that by turning within and with you know methodologies that work, with meditation, prayer, all these things, you can tap into previously unrealized energy, intelligence, happiness, and resources than is normally accessible to people. And that in so doing, you bring out from inside the true sources of happiness and fulfillment, because most of us are looking outwardly for those ha- that happiness and fulfillment, the, you know, the, the next job, the next car, the next relationship, the, you know, whatever. And that's a kind of mistake of the mind that we think the pleasures of the senses, the the achievements of life, the things we pursue are the source of happiness when the real source is within us. And by tapping into those, the outer life becomes more pleasant and more um, satisfying as well. And that's the the key message. But even on a deeper level, the, the key that they all point to is that what we call the divine in whatever language, whether we use God language or you know scientific language or secular language like spirit or the sacred dimension of life, that is who we are. And that's what our ultimate identity is, 
beyond Phil and Stephanie and the personalities and the you know the constraints of body and personality and all that. There's a spiritual dimension to our existence that is our ultimate identity, and that is the same identity we all share, and that is what we call divine or sacred, and that that is that can be experienced, not just uh, thought about. And that was his mission. His, he did it differently from the other gurus. He had different you know, variations of meditation practices and breathing practices and all that. There's a vast repertoire that comes to us from the East. So there's different pathways to the same realization. And if you look deeply into the Christian mystic and, and the others in the Abrahamic faiths, you find the same kind of variation with the same theme. Dr. Natalie Phillips, host of Connecting a Better World, and every Monday on the show, we take time to spotlight individuals, businesses, and organizations doing good in this world with thought-provoking interviews designed to focus on the impact they are making in our community. Listen live every Monday at 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern, only on NOCO FM, and subscribe to the podcast at noco.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey friends, this is Charles with NOCO FM, the podcast network and streaming radio station dedicated to creating diverse shows just like this one and the numerous others that we help produce. We hope you'll consider becoming a supporter on Patreon, which helps us pay our hosts, produce more shows, and allows us to give back to nonprofits in Northern Colorado. Not only do you become part of our community, but giving also gets you access to an incredible selection of exclusive content from all of our creators, starting at just $2 a month. To get started now, just visit noco.fm slash patron and sign up. Once again, that's noco.fm slash patron. Hope you have a fantastic start to 2019. We've got some big things coming your way. Now, back to the show. I think this, it couldn't be at a more important time when we, there's so much fear and challenges that people are facing in the world right now. And Indeed. I'm curious in your mind, then what is the importance of developing and staying with the spiritual practice in these crazy times? Funny you should use that language because among other things I do is I blog sometimes on uh, spirituality and health online, I, uh, other places too. But the last blog I did before the holidays on spirituality and health was called The Importance of Spiritual Practice in Crazy Times. <laughs> and then just last week, I did a Facebook Live on the Hay House. I, on face, I did a Facebook Live 
with the same title. So that's been on my mind. We are living in bizarre and crazy times, challenging times, depressing times for many people, anxiety-producing times. And some people say, well, in these times, I, I, I just, I'm so upset I can't do my spiritual practice, or I don't have time for it. I'm just obsessed with the news, and I, or I'm uh, working for this candidate or this cause or whatever. And my message, based on my, to give away my age, but my 50 years of you know, being on the spiritual path and working with others in their own spiritual lives, is that that's wrong thinking, that this is a time when we need the spiritual dimension. Because when you, when you really think of it, yes, we have political problems, we have ecological problems, we have social problems, we have all kinds of problems. But deep down, what we really have is a spiritual crisis. And we need spiritually driven solutions to those problems. We need all the wisdom, all the compassion, all the empathy, all the creativity that a good spiritual path will help to generate. And, and on an individual basis, we also need refuge from it all. And there's nothing wrong with taking refuge in, in the sort of sanctuary of the soul or in your spiritual community or both, and then at the same time paying attention to the world. And I will say, there are some people who go the opposite way and say, oh, I, I'm not going to pay attention to the problems of the world. I'm just going to dive into my own spiritual life and cut myself off from all that stress and craziness. Well, there again, we come back to Yogananda's life, because one of the things I was really pleasantly surprised to find out when I dug into his life was how engaged he was in the world. I mean, he was totally focused on helping people grow spiritually and bringing out as much as he could in the time he had of the vast legacy of uh, India's spiritual teachings. But at the same time, he used this platform to speak out against injustices, against racism, against greed, against avarice, standing up for the Indian independent movement, independence movement, all, all kinds of stuff. He was not cut. Yes, one of the, I was pleasantly surprised in Yogananda's uh, life when I, I researched it to see that while he was very single-minded and hardworking about his principal mission, which was to help people grow spiritually and to bring out as much as he could in the time he had of uh, the, the sort of vast body of teachings from his homeland of India. He also did not ignore the circumstances of the world. He used his platform in writing and in speaking to uh, take a stand against various injustices of the time, against racism, against America's in immigration policy at the time, which prevented people like him from being citizens, and in speaking out on behalf of uh, Gandhi and the Indian independence movement. And he did so at some risk because of the times he lived in, but he did not ignore those things or, you know, just chalk them up as irritations to be avoided in the name of spirituality. They were affecting people's lives. And so he spoke out uh, when he could. And, and I think we're all called upon to pay attention to the circumstances of life and manifest, express our own spiritual 
orientations and development as good citizens in whatever way we can. Uh, I think that, you know, the times call for that. So it's not just being an ostrich with your head in the sand and being, I'm going to go in a cave and just meditate and not interact with the world and engage with the world when no. in actuality, the world needs us more than ever right now. Yes. You know, at the same time, there is a, a, a place for getting away and going to the ashram, going to the monastery, going on retreat, whatever. There's a, a that's those activities have a, a very important role to play. But we're not going there forever. Here yes. You say it's, and, it's, we need to have that balance. Yes. And the teachings of the East, if you look at it, or if you look at all the mythologies of the world's religious traditions, the people go off to the wilderness as Jesus did, or, you know, into the cave like Muhammad did, and like, you know, so many of the Indian sages and Buddhist monks do. But they come back. They come back. Buddha came back and he taught in the world. These The gurus who became very famous, Jesus himself, they came back to serve. And that there's a time and a place for retreat and again, cutting ourselves off, but we, we're not going to do that forever. And so you come back and you, you engage. So once we replenish ourselves and realign ourselves with spirit, then we can come back and engage with the world in a different, more full way. Precisely. And and you see examples of that throughout history in the world's uh, religious literature and the mythologies of the world. In fact, Joseph Campbell, great mythologist, you know, he called that the hero's journey. And that's a big part of it. You know, the going away, the learning deep lessons, discovering the inner life, having a, you know, discovering the teacher or the teaching or whatever, and then coming back and serving the community, the, 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 the world. And so there's a, there's a place for withdrawal and then engagement. And everybody has to find the proper balance and the, prop, the timing that, that's appropriate for them. But to ignore world's conditions and say, oh, it's just passing phenomenon, or it's too stressful, I can't deal with it. Yeah, there's something to be said for that. But at the same time, we also need spiritual activists. And I think one of the things that you've spoken to, to the importance of staying consistent, keep showing up spiritual path or keep showing up for our practice. Yeah, to me, that's I, I'm very practice oriented. It goes, you know, back to the 1960s. You know, uh, to me, the essence of being a spiritual person is the uh, experiential component, as opposed to intellectual inquiry or uh, belief, which club you belong to, <laughs> which tribe, or you know, which set of doctrines you adhere to. What really matters is the, the experience of the spiritual dimension of life. And for that, there's this old joke about somebody, on a tourist on the streets of New York, and he says, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? And the New Yorker says, practice, practice, practice. And that's, I always think that's, that applies to the spiritual life, spiritual practice using methodologies to go deeper into the inner dimension of life, having practices that help you bring that, 
the inner dimension, the inner qualities that you tap into, into the world, the teachings that, that help guide your moral behavior, your ethical behavior. These are practices, how you show up. So I'm very method oriented and I, you know, but there's a wide range of definition of what constitutes spiritual practice. But to me, tapping into the inner peace that we all have is the the sort of foundational practice. And I know that in my work with my own clients, as, as they're developing, if you will, the whole person, as they're mm-hmm. working on healing the whole person, a lot of times that will come up as an element that they're saying, okay, I've never really been on a sp- spiritual path. I want to open up to that or nurture it. And this summer, I was at a Marianne Williamson's Powerful Beyond Measure conference in Denver. And one of the things that she spoke of, and it really clicked with me, and and now I utilize it in my own practice with my clients is just start with five minutes. Yeah. Just start with five minutes. And even if you just sit there and it doesn't matter what you call it, the spirit, universe, the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, just invite that in and be with that. Just starting with five minutes and, and we can grow that from there. I will first say that at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned my Spirit Matters podcast. Mm -hmm. Marianne Williamson is the only guest who's been on three times. Well, you need to to talk to her and tell her. I've I've been trying to get her on my show for about six months. (laughs) You can can find her in our archive. And I, I hear what she's saying. I would say start with more than five minutes. But if that's all you have, yes, give it 20, give it a half hour, whatever. Because obviously there's a there's such a thing as giving it too much time, but there's such a thing as too little time. But everybody has to find that dimension. But yes, I often tell people, make a list of practices that nurture your spirit and break them down into time periods, like things I could do on a weekend, things I could do for a day, things I could do in under an hour, things I could do in 15 minutes, things I can do in five minutes or less. And then you have a repertoire to call upon, depending on the circumstances of your life and and what you have learned works for you. But it's terribly important to take some time where you tune out the senses and allow yourself to go within. Thank you for sharing that. In looking at time, one of the things I want to make sure that I ask you about, one of the things that Yogananda was really clear about, it sounds like, was his dharma. And yes. He, and so he had to fight against even when he'd have this urge to go into the, the Ganji River and just escape all of the difficulties that were happening here. But he knew that this was what he was supposed to do when in sharing this message. So right. how do we discover what our dharma is and how do we discover and then follow our dharma? And what is the importance of this? Oh, to me, it's critical. You know, there's and discerning our personal dharma, what's called sva dharma in in Sanskrit. Dharma essentially means that that which is brings you to the highest level of of life, that which supports your uh, spiritual evolution, and that which is best for not just you but your your family. Your, you know, your, you have family dharma, you have community dharma, you have all these different components of dharma. So in Yogananda's case, as I said earlier, it was very clear to him early on what his dharma was. To his family, the proper dharma would have been, you know, you go to college, you get a good job, you have an arranged marriage, you have a family, and you do that. 
but he saw his dharma as the other tradition in India, which is the monastic way. And he, he knew that early on. We live in more complicated circumstances, and men, most of us are not clear on our dharma at an early age. So we struggle with it, my God. You know, and, and, we, and dharma doesn't just mean your occupation or your career or your life's calling, but that's a big part of it and it's what, what we focus on. And we have so many choices and the whole tra- sense of traditional dharma is, is out the window. So we have to discern it and we discern it by seeing what we're drawn to, what gives us pleasure, what gives us satisfaction, what feeds our souls, nurtures our spirit, or as Joseph Campbell said, you know, follow your bliss, meaning, you know, that's where, you know, you're likely to find the clues to your dharma. And at the same time, you know, it gets complicated because people say, well, I know my, my dharma, it's clear, I should be a novelist. Well, yes, but you may need a job too, because not everybody is going to write a bestseller. So career and dharma, family responsibilities, all those things get mixed up. But the only real discernment is inside and and the intuitive sense of where I'm called to go, where I'm called to go. And that sense may be cultivated over time. And we come back again to spiritual practices because it's there in in the quiet mind in the attunement to the inner dimension that we, we find that. But even someone like Yogananda can have a sense of competing dharmas, because as a monk in the Hindu tradition, you could say, well, it was his dharma to go off to a cave and be with the other renunciates walking along the Ganges and being a, a, a monk, as you see all over sacred places of India. But he had a different dharma, and he knew that. He had this mission that was to be a monk in the world, meant to accomplish certain things. And that, that won out over the urge to give it up and uh, follow the monk, the traditional monastic dharma. And what do you feel like is the gift of that as, as we find our own dharma? Oh, well, that's, you know, it's in, in following If it's truly your dharma, that's where fulfillment lies. That's where the maximum spiritual rewards come. That's often where the the best material rewards come from. And, And worldly happiness are, if your dharma is to marry and be a parent by following that in the right way with the right mate and so forth you're going to have the the pleasures and joys of worldly life and that will nurture your soul as well but you know there's a line in the bhagavad gita which i always it's one of the first things that <laughs> leaped out at me when i read that you know 50 years ago there's a passage that says Better death in one's own dharma, the dharma of another brings danger. Meaning, don't fool yourself. Don't make the mistake of following somebody else's dharma because that looks good. Or don't get, don't get, make, don't get it wrong. Follow your own dharma because that's where the fulfillment lies. And so the discernment of that 
and the willingness to follow. And sometimes that it's trial and error, especially in the younger stages of life. But once, once it's clear, you got to follow it. I think that's such an essential point because I think people do compare so much or think they, they need to be at a certain station or a certain level in life. And that truly, sometimes our dharma is just to be the best mom we can be. Or, and what could be more satisfying? Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't have to be, like you said, writing a book or being famous or being this public figure. It might no. be the most simplistic positions. If if you're meant to be a famous public figure or whatever, that will probably come from following your dharma, not by trying to be famous. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that that you know that's where the teaching about following your dharma and being unattached to the fruits of your action comes comes in. You do what's before you. You do the next what you're called to do next and let the results uh, work out as they will. And to, I know a lot of people who have perfectly satisfying lives, lives that should be very uh, understood and received as a gift and a blessing, but somehow they got it in their minds that they were meant to be famous or rich or whatever, and so there's this dissatisfaction instead of the acceptance of a life well lived. And there's, that's usually also a sign of something missing spiritually, you know, and, and being able to be full and present in the moment. It sounds like that's what we had spoken about earlier. That's that piece of where you're grasping for your happiness or sense of self externally. Yeah. What the Buddhists would call cravings. Yes. Yeah. And 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 there's a, it's a mistaken notion in some spiritual circles that having desires is somehow wrong, or <laughs> you can't live in the world and not have desires. Whether you know, even if it's the desire for you know the, the happiness of other people, or your the desire for food and shelter. But it's the cravings and the desperate quality that uh, lead us astray. I think Pema Chodron refers to it as, is it the Shempa, the urge? Yeah. yeah. So she speaks about the Shempa, which is the urge that mm. comes up and we feel like we have to fix something. So we have to get food or we have to gamble or we have to do something exteriorly to fix it. And when we befriend that part and just can go within, that is what changes everything. Yes. And in a funny, strange way. When the desire is a good one, a legitimate one, one that will serve us and our, our families or whatever, but the going within helps us discern the constructive desire from the potential destructive desire and helps us fulfill it. So, so you say, oh, you know, I'm going to get drunk. Well, not a, necessarily a, a good desire, but you know, underneath that urge is I want to be more at peace or I want to have fun. Well, you can do it in a less destructive way, perhaps. Exactly. So the desire, I, I love what you're saying, because it's the desire to have fun. That That's a positive thing. That's a good thing. It can it's very means, well be. It can be, know. but it's the means in yeah. which you're going to go to do it. Yeah. So the importance of right. knowing it's okay and, to have desire. It's what, what, right. yeah, and you wouldn't it serves want you. A, you wouldn't want a spiritual orientation that says it's not good to desire fun. Well, what if you're a parent? And you want to have fun with your kid. Is that a bad thing? 
<laughs> Absolutely not. How right? Is that you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I know we could keep talking about this stuff because it, there's so many fascinating things that I would love to keep talking to you about. Wonderful thing, and the wonderful thing you're sharing with your book. The the key pieces that I've picked up from our conversation are are these things about how we can better be in our world. And in our ever-changing world, Yogananda, through his human life and his spiritual teachings, is really bringing that to us, the way that we can deal with difficulties and deal with all these different things by becoming more of an activist, going within as well, finding, like you said, this balance between mm-hmm. t- the two. And then, to, and tell me if I'm if I'm hitting this right, the sense of in our spiritual journeys, developing a daily practice that will help us go within, find those resources, and then we can also bring them through our own spiritual journey to share with others and engage more effectively with the world. Sounds right to me, Stephanie. Thank you for sum- summarizing it so well. Well, it's it's just been such a pleasure speaking with you. And I appreciate you sharing these such important messages with our audience and helping people learn how to show up more effectively in their inner life. Thank you. And thank you for having me on the show. I greatly appreciate the invitation. In sharing of Yogananda's life, Philip Goldberg brings to us this wonderful blend and balance of interacting with the world and resourcing ourselves from within. I think one of the important things that he shared with us is the importance of knowing that this evolved spiritual life where nothing difficult ever happens and we never face challenges again once we become spiritual is a myth. And the importance of just beginning to have inner resources so that we can better deal with whatever challenges we do face. We can come to the challenges that are in our lives or that show up in our lives and deal with them in a way where we do have resources and we come from a much more responsive place rather than just a reactive place. And we aren't as easily derailed. In my discussion with Philip around following your Dharma, for many of us think that we can use different words if that's what fits us, if that's what makes more sense to us. It's it's finding out your inner purpose and finding out the best way that you can live your life at your highest level that actually serves not only you, but also serves those around you. These are crucial times and the importance of all of us doing the inner work so that we can also be a greater participant in the outer world becomes essential. I'm grateful for Philip Goldberg giving us this wonderful guide to help us and illuminate our path to a deeper understanding and greater resources so we can contribute to each other in a deeper and more profound way. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This has been a production of NOCO-FM.